Stolo. Today I'm talking with Ellen Corman Maines. Ellen dropped out of college at 19 to study with a Tibetan meditation master. For years, she also practiced traditional Japanese Zen archery, or Kyudo, and then other mind-body disciplines. Drawn to energy healing and earth-based wisdom, as well as Buddhism, Ellen has taught internationally for over three decades. Ellen mentors individuals and groups in uncovering the gifts hidden within their own vulnerability. Ellen wants to invite you to roll out the welcome mat to your feelings. In that welcoming, one discovers infinite freedom to be with anything that is arising because one has created space, not conflict or tension. I read your bio and there's so much intrigue in there. There's a, there's a mysterious vibe in your bio that I want to start with because I think it's filled with lots of richness. And I think the best Mm -hmm. moment to start in is the decision that you highlight about leaving university and starting intense studies into Tibetan meditation. Can you tell me about that time in your life and what precipitated that decision and and what that experience was like? Yeah, thank you for asking that. It really was not a mental decision at all. It was very much a kind of heart decision experience that happened. As you know, I grew up in Montreal. I was the daughter of Holocaust survivors. I lived a lot in my own world. And I think I felt different or isolated from other people. So there was a sense of uh, like a kind of living in this strange realm. And what happened was I attended a talk by a Tibetan teacher Now, what attracted me was I'd read the something in the newspaper and it said it was a talk about passion, aggression, and ignorance. And that's what caught my attention. So it wasn't that he was Tibetan, Buddhist. In fact, I was highly skeptical of every kind of idea of a guru or religious whatever. But it was this passion, aggression, and ignorance that sort of grabbed me. Actually, the first um, evening, the talk kind of went by me a little bit. I I have no clear memory. But for some reason, I decided to do the weekend program that was going to be largely meditation and talks by this teacher, whose name was Trungpa Rinpoche, Chogyam Trungpa. So something evolved over that weekend of just listening to him and practicing meditation for the very first time. And in particular, on the Sunday afternoon, I had a personal interview with him. The first thing that happened was I was sitting there and he just looked at me. He looked kind of worn out. There'd been some really interesting interactions during the weekend. Anyway, I I had this sense of just seeing him as a human being. And he looked at me as a human being, and he looked at me and he said, how old are you? Or not even in that big deal tone of voice, just how old are you? And I, it happened to be three days, two or three days before my 19th birthday. And I felt I was aware of feeling so old. 
like I was carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. And so when he just asked that question, it just like punctured, went right into my heart. And I, I just started to cry. So it was that feeling that he saw some kind of suffering that I carried and or some kind of a weight that I carried. And I knew somehow that that I could connect, I could for the first time in my life, meet that suffering or pain or that genuine something that was in me in what he was offering in his presence and in the meditation practice, which was not about trying to get beyond who you were and attain some mystical state, but really just experiencing what was happening moment to moment and make friends with yourself. There was something about the environment that he created and, and just his direct contact that something real was touched. Was that the first moment where you felt someone inviting you very fully and openly into embracing your experience as it was? Well, uh, maybe not the only time, but certainly a very major time. What was different about this, it was, was not just a one-off. It felt like there was a path, there was a practice, there was a way to take an, another step or to explore. And it was definitely an exploration, but it was just definitely like, this is real. Do you want to take the next step? And then it just kept going and not without a lot of doubt and you know, along the way. Yeah, well, you opened to a very grand adventure. I just started rereading Mutant Message Down Under. I remember reading it mm. in my early 20s. And there's a very, very similar leap of faith moment in that book where the, the woman who speaks about her experience on Walkabout when she's invited by Aboriginal communities in Australia to go on a three-month walkabout out of the blue. What opens you to that leap of faith experience, despite all the doubt? Was it feeling safe in that presence and trusting in that presence that allowed you to open to that? Yeah, I guess that's one way to express it. And that's a lot about what the journey is, is actually creating a space, which takes reorienting or learning a kind of, oh, how, how do you even create a space? For him, it was not an artificial space. It was his training, the result of his training. More personally, I mean, I guess you have to say there's two things. You create a space in which something genuine can occur. But that genuine thing that occurs, even if it's for a 20th of a second, is so genuine that we recognize it. And that can change our life. So I think it's the two things. Now, obviously, in our lives, we have <clears throat> moments of genuineness. That's what it is to be human. That's what basic goodness or our nature is at the core, is this ability to genuinely connect with something or feel something completely and know it's true. Those things happen spontaneously, but how to perhaps create more opportunity or invitation is more what the practice is about. So you have the creation of a space, but what is it that happens? Something we can't control, something that arises, you know, you could say by accident. And one way I've heard meditation described is 
awareness or enlightenment is an accident and meditation makes you accident prone. <laughs> so there was something being touched is, is the point. And you cannot force that to happen. You cannot make it happen, but you can create the conditions in which it's more likely to happen. Yeah, you come home to it kind of tripping and stumbling sometimes. You studied Tibetan meditation practice. Sounds like you're starting to open to a new experience of of being, being with yourself, being in the world. And then at some point in your evolutionary process, you stumble on Zen archery. I want to talk about your experience with Zen archery because just knowing little about what I know about it, contrasted against a very kind of goal-oriented process, which we're very familiar with in North America, like most of our performance or sports or athletics are very, very goal-oriented. We celebrate people who are winning at things. How do you get into Zen archery? What are you discovering in that experience that furthers you down your own personal growth development path? It's so funny. I, I often forget about that whole big piece. Uh, it is an important piece in a way. Um, well, how was that my Buddhist teacher invited this Kudo master, 20th generation uh, emperor, uh, archer to the emperor of Japan, so very high position uh, in Japan, um, invited him, heard about him through a, a Zen teacher named uh, Kobenchina Roshi. And um, Kobenchina Roshi had studied with Kanjiro Shibata Sensei in Japan, who's this uh, Zen master, I mean, um, Kudo master, and conveyed this invitation that he would like him to come uh, to America and teach his students. So in uh, 1980, I believe, he came for the first time for a visit with his son. Uh, I happened to be married at the time to someone who was into martial arts. So probably I wouldn't have uh, particularly thought of uh, it. I might have been aware of it, but because my husband at the time was, uh, yeah, into martial arts, he was invited or just it was it was more up. And I thought, oh yeah, let's let's go check it out. Similarly, in a way, it was this heart quality. Uh, so I don't know if you know much about Japanese kind of. Mm, spirituality and aesthetic, you know, this sort of, there's this deep, you know, they have this word kokoro, which means heart-mind, that's sort of like that they're the same, or the, that essence is, is this precious thing that they value, they put a lot of value on, and it comes out in this sort of bittersweet music and painting and just uh, many ways, so so I think it was this combination of this person, this teacher who had this very bittersweet, this quality of sadness in, in his being or of feeling this, this connection to suffering again, which is, you could say, a thread in my life. And um, at the same time, this archery practice that is so precise so the form, the way you hold the bow, 
every tiny detail of it is very, very precise. So it's, it's a kind of, and I think I have that. I also have this little bit of a steel trap kind of mind thing. You know, So there's something about precision is something you can do, actually, you can do. And I think the biggest element there is bringing the mind and body together. So, uh, which is already present in, in uh, meditation, but in the case of archery, I mean, it's described as, or Zen archery, it's standing meditation and then moving. And so the precision is kind of this very strong mindfulness practice of placing your attention on what you're doing. And, but also there's such a delicacy and um, combination of strength and softness that comes into it. So the form is very beautiful, very precise, very elegant, very noble. And then, you know, you get to open yourself. I mean, literally, you make this big rainbow arch and you open yourself. And then there's this moment of, and so that opening is definitely like, I think, especially for women, it's like men are used to like, you know, using their strength and everything. But uh, for a woman to do it, it's sort of like this, wow, you can, you can feel into this quality of power and at the same time there's a softness in it and yes there is also this quality that at the moment of release there's this sense of how much in balance are you where is your mind how much are you thinking about what you're trying to do versus really being there and just being completely lined up and then open and so it's it's all this sort of subtlety of being present and then boom, letting go, you know. And so where you are, how lined up you are in that moment of letting go, it's like a teaching, you know, it's like a wake up call, like you get it, you know, you feel it. Uh, so it was my attraction to the uh, physical activity because also as a younger person, I was, I was always interested in dance and gymnastics. And so this was like, wow, you know, you, I was naturally well-coordinated so it was something I could really do. And then it had all these other aspects. And then also this connection with uh, my teacher, which was uh, strong. Yeah, it sounds like alignment was has yeah. a very important um, metaphor for you growing up. And it's also, I think, a metaphor that permeates your journey. It's interesting in your journey that you take a very fresh approach to the experience of feeling. You know, we have, mm -hmm. there are a lot of conventions around how we talk about feelings, particularly in, in, in North America. And a lot of the narrative is dominated by contemporary psychology. We talk about a certain spectrum of feelings like anger and sadness. And we talk about feelings that are acceptable and unacceptable. We're often talking about analyzing feelings and dissecting them. Um, tracing their roots, unpacking them. You're inviting something different in this journey uh, that I think initially for some people might be a little counterintuitive, but I want to talk about what you're inviting people into. What does it mean to be with your feelings? Different than analyzing, dissecting, or avoiding. Let's try to unpack some of that. Being with one's feelings, inviting that space of allowing feelings what's that about 
it's so simple. Like you just said it, you know, and yet it's so hard for us to do. Where does that initial tension arise from? You know, our feelings are, I mean, at the core, like they are the energy of our being, of our life. And everything is in them, good, bad, you know, but our mind is so programmed and so much wants, so afraid of being bad, literally, and wanting to be good. And feelings don't observe that, you know, that, 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 you know, line in the sand. So it's as if we're, you know, I mean, we have many parts within ourselves, I think, but fundamentally, it's like we have this, you could say, if you wanted to just simplify it and say, there's this whole rich tapestry of feeling that's constantly happening, and maybe sometimes you know, resting, but rising up like water, rivers and oceans of feeling. And, uh, and then we have this mental idea of who we should be, how we should be, what's good, what's bad. And especially as children, you know, as young as babies, pre-memory, we operated on, on so much on the level of feeling and whether our feelings were received or and resonated with and accepted and if it was okay to have those feelings so inside us there's there's so much vulnerability that was so painful that experienced so much pain growing up you know each one of us i think to maybe to different degrees but i think each one of us so that natural vulnerability and sensitivity that we began, we began to, to censor and say, well, this one, this one's okay, this one's not okay. Don't be needy. If you do this, they're gonna, they're not gonna like me. For a child or a baby, not being liked is literally a, a, an issue of survival. So we we begin to build in, you know, so much should okay, not okay that is censoring even before we're aware of it subconsciously censoring what it's okay to feel so i think that happens in very earliest conditioning with our parents but also culturally educationally with friends and who knows how many other experiences not to mention maybe even things that we carry from perhaps before our birth or from our lineage or whatever uh, so anyway, there is this very active, very powerful judge that's um, censoring and filtering. And also we have this prevalence in our culture, uh, valuing the mind. And so then we, that's another dimension is just generally saying, well, just let's just Let's just try to devalue all of that stuff and superimpose this more mental goal-oriented, success-oriented results, quantifiable, you know, all of these things, you know, so there can be multiple layers of, of it. Yeah, very judicial, very corrective, 
um, definitely this image of, you know, the brain as this upper seat of consciousness, the judge and jury of all things that are okay in our lives and feelings need to be mitigated by that entity, um, kept in check, kept in order. It's a very, very dominant narrative. Um, and it's actually a narrative that permeates a lot of mental health as well. I would say more modern modalities are, I think the reach into the more ancient traditions of mindfulness and meditation are opening up the experience of being with feelings differently, uh, kind of straying a little more away from some of those corrective, punitive approaches, or again, these two columns of which feelings are good and which feelings are bad, which feelings are useful, which feelings are, are not useful. You've mentioned it already in our conversation, and you talk a lot about it in this journey, this experience of creating or being in space and in felt sense and what you describe at one point in the journey as inner rightness. So we've, you've highlighted a little bit about you know, what the elephant in the room is kind of with feelings. Let's talk now about what you're inviting people into. What kind of space are you inviting people into? So in a way, space can be created or is created simply by our attitude. So when we consciously adopt or just say, okay, let's, let's just pretend almost like, let's just say these words. Let's just act as if, uh, as, as if, um, everything is welcome. It's okay to actually include everything. So as, as soon as I, every time I say that out loud, it's like, I feel something on the periphery of my being relax. Like as if it's been holding, as if we always have this sort of something or other trying to hold something together or keep something out. So if we stop trying just for a moment to keep something out, ah, there's this feeling of, oh, I often like to begin like guided meditations by just saying, don't try to do anything. Oh, just, just be here for a moment. And of course, feeling the body is super important. So where do feelings live? They live in this funny space somewhere between the mind and the body. They're very much held in the body. So one thing to create that space is simply to bring the mind and body together or to like bring our mind, you could say, to the body because the body's in the present and the body is what hold, is what's holding it. And it's also okay, and I'm uh, not trying to like exclude the mind. So the mind is, you know, we may be like really thinking about something that just happened that's on our mind, that's, that's, that's got a lot of energy attached to it. So it's also, it's not like cut your mind out completely. No, it's just let that be there, but let's come down into the body. And just sort of, how am I? How am I right now? And can I feel my feet? Can I feel my toes? And just feeling like, first of all, like the overall energy or atmosphere, but also just the slowing down. So there's a whole process. So that's why this takes some time. It's not just like an instant thing, but a practice of pausing, coming into the body, and then consciously kind of allowing or inviting 
So, you know, as you know, in the journey, we, we go through this kind of little step by little step, you know, and each one has some unpacking that, that we can do, but basically just like, yeah, allowing anything to be there and then sensing in the body, how am I? And maybe then just like, and what's, just noticing what's here, what's here. It's radically simple. <laughs> I mean, this is the, uh, this is the paradox of the wisdom traditions, obviously, is they're so radically simple. Radical in the sense that they challenge a lot of the very stitched in assumptions that we have. So we becoming aware of those assumptions is part of that process. And there's an unstitching. At the end of it all, you realize there was just one thread, so to speak. There was one simple thread. But the unstitching allows you to experience that simpleness. And, and that's where it's, it's radically complicated and radically simple at the same time. What did we discover when we start tuning into our felt sense in our body? What are we opening to? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pausing to think because like, well, it could be anything um, or it could be nothing. And sometimes like I'm not the greatest felt sensor actually. And uh, so I often like, hmm, uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, um, right. Uh, well, is it, you say, I you think, know, you talk about the welcome mat, like the first, I, you actually, you convinced me to go out and get a welcome mat for my space because I was very, very moved by what you said about just the idea of welcoming. And when you put out the welcome mat, probably similar analogous to a home, what is inside that home is, could be highly variable. Is, so when I asked you about what you discover in that space, Sounds to me like, well, when you say it's anything or nothing, is it, le is it less about what we discover in that space and just the idea of moving into that space and being in that space? Yeah, very much. It's just like, I think, developing the, the welcome, the, the welcome that that's a great image, uh, that, that you're actually open and curious and developing the skill of non-aggression towards yourself. So very often what we're experiencing is attention and, a, and you know, a, a, a resistance, a problem, uh, an issue, and there's a tension. So can we just actually even acknowledge that? So it's, the idea is you start with the thing that's first there, you know, instead of saying, well, I, I can't get to that because there's all this other stuff. No, we just acknowledge the stuff. Oh, my mind is racing right now, or I'm, I'm really upset about this and I don't want to be. So it's so important to notice that, and something in me doesn't want to be. Ah, and you know what happened? We just said something that is so true that, that the resistance in us dropped away. Oh yes, I just said something that was true. So for me, what it is for me, like I think everybody's different. Their experience of their process of getting to the felt sense is different. And how they go about it and what they discover is really different from person to person. That's also very fascinating. So it's important to respect each person's different way of accessing it, finding it, relating to it. 
and the way in which it helps them, like it's really different um, for people. For me, some of the things I've mentioned, like these just little tiny mini micro moves of allowing and of, and there doesn't seem to be anything big beyond it maybe, but other times, like actually what I'm, what I really like to talk about and what I find myself most drawn to is like when, when you really hit a brick wall, when I feel like up against a wall and really frustrated and can't figure it out, just cannot figure it out. And then there is this sense of like, almost like something falling apart there, like, like a kind of experience of breaking or failing. Like, I just can't figure this out and I can't penetrate it. And there's something about this, I can't think of the expression, like rock meets bone. I think that's what it is. Anyway, there's some quality of like, you just can't massage it. You can't fix it. You can't get over it. And then something kind of cracks or breaks. And in that break, so this is me personally, like I seem to need, there's, there's this general atmosphere of acceptance that seems to be helpful and like just relaxation. And then for me, somehow it's like these really big obstacles that when they crack open and I feel my heart in this, it's just as if that opens a vastness, as if that opens a something and it goes deep and then and it goes down into me and it's just like yeah that's what i was looking for or that's what i'm grateful for you know now i don't think everybody's like that you know i think there are people that just find so much insight sometimes uh that i might not find about something you know like uh people have very rich ways of following images in their minds so some people are very image oriented visually oriented some people it might be more like certain words that hold uh, a feeling and a meaning so it's also really opening to this variety in which we sense you know these inner senses i think the one feature that you highlight that i i think is quite perennial a common experience that everyone has is the experience of forcing versus allowing. Y you and I are kindred spirits in many ways because in working together, I've also at least gotten a, a glimmer of the process. I've come to know certain features of your process that you and I share in common. And I know what it feels like to sometimes feel like you're forcing something or feeling that sense of constraint and how you allow yourself or you invite that allowing into that experience like day in and day out i'm f i feel like i'm faced with a multitude of decisions and a lot of them feel like mission critical decisions it's very daunting and your first instinct is boy i gotta solve this equation and i gotta get it right like you really don't fully know what either of those things mean and the presence of being to allow yourself to allow that moment to unfold <laughs> is its own process. It's its own art. It's its own craft. That sounds like the archery. You know, it's like you set it up and you, 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 
you built it and here you are and then boom you know something else has to happen well it's the, not in your control completely maybe let, let's talk about the archery analogy because it's apt right so in a conventional model you would say the archer's goal is to hit the target that, that would seem somewhat self-evident you would think that one would be discontented if they didn't hit the target any activity that seemingly has a goal attached to it is if one does not perform the goal, one will be dissatisfied. And that plays out in all facets of people's lives. If I don't attain this, if I don't acquire that, if I'm not successful at this, um, that's the dominant narrative. Uh, that's the dominating narrative, the solving narrative. Um, how fast, quick can I get to that seemingly very important goal? you're challenging something here in this journey about that. And then similarly in, in the experience of Zen archery, a similar gauntlet is thrown down. The target becomes a byproduct of the allowing, right? The archer and the target become more, much more deeply integrated as a byproduct of that allowing to be open to things as they are with a full attention to the experience in that moment. So for example, I would assume, I'm just, you know, you'll correct me obviously if I'm wrong, but if the archer is standing in front of the target and all they're focused on is hitting that target, they may be unaware of feeling out of balance. They may be unaware of disruptive feelings that are creating instability, so to speak. Right. So the archer's full attention to that moment ultimately is what facilitates the precision of the letting go. Yes, that's right. Yes. The precision of the letting go invites the target. Right. And what, 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 what's said is the target is your heart or is that alignment? So uh, there is, um, yeah, a sense in which, like there was one time I remember standing on the platform and I uh, shot and doesn't happen that rarely, but I happened to hit the target, um, which could be accidental, you know, that I happened to hit it. <clears throat> and my teacher got up and walked toward me and he said, your heart shot the target. Like you, that was the shot, that was the, the heart. And, and it didn't seem like a very big deal to me because yeah, it was just, it just happened, you know, but that's the point is that when we're focused, you know, what we do is we separate. There's me and there's what I want, and they are separate. And the more we, we feel them separate, the more, you know, the further apart they get. And in this case, uh, there was some kind of align combination of alignment and relaxation, right? So that's the other part is relaxing, like we can't, there's only so much we can do. And yeah, so there's something about breaking down that subject object thing that, that happens. I remember once a couple of years ago, I think watching TV or watching Netflix and feeling this kind of like outside myselfness about it. Like um, you're trying to relax, you're trying to enjoy, I don't know, you're and something is like as if I'm I'm actually somewhere else. And I remember saying to myself or something saying to me, place your awareness inside yourself equally 
to the same extent that you're looking at the screen, look in. And it, I just felt this um, huge, like, it was like a little transmission about watching TV, <laughs> you know, that I became present somehow. And I was still watching the TV, but that sense of being outside myself was no longer there. And I think that's actually very similar. We don't, that's why we don't feel fulfilled until we are like really inside the process. Keep on exploring. Alan invites you to go on a huddle journey into the magical practice of feeling your life.